I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The health of the nation and the health of its economy have been hit hard by COVID-19. We look to doctors and scientists to help control the pandemic. Can we still look to economists to offer useful advice about how to heal the economy? Does standard macroeconomic analysis explain what is going on? Or do the effects of a worldwide pandemic force us to rethink how the economy operates and what can be done in the current situation? To answer these questions, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Greg Mankiw of Harvard University. Greg is known in the economics profession as a leading macroeconomics researcher. He's known to generations of students as the author of the best-selling macroeconomics textbook, now in its 10th edition. Greg has policy experience as well, most notably serving as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors in the George W. Bush administration. He frequently contributes to the public debate, including by his regular Economic View columns in the New York Times. Greg, welcome to Econfact Chats. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you on the podcast. Greg, can you put the current macroeconomic situation in some historical context? Well, the first thing to say about it is it was an incredibly rapid economic downturn. The fall in employment from February to April was the fastest two-month decline uh, in employment that we've ever seen. The second thing to say about it is that it was very unusual in the sense that it was a recession by design. We intended this recession. By that, I mean that given the pandemic, we wanted employment to fall. We wanted people to stay at home rather than going to work unless they had essential jobs or unless they could work from home. We wanted customers to not go to restaurants, not go to stores unless they needed to. And so the whole thing was designed to be a recession, which is very unlike previous economic downturns. And as a result, the policy response has been different. We have a big fiscal package, the CARES Act, but I think of that policy as less stimulus in the, in the traditional sense and more it was disaster relief. So, for example, you know, normally we give people unemployment insurance that replaces a fraction of their former wages. Here we're giving unemployment insurance that replaced more than 100% in many cases. And that wasn't really a problem because we didn't really want people to go back to work. We were perfectly happy to have them disincentivized to go to work, to stay at home. Now, the last thing to say about how different this is, is how it's going to end. I don't know how long it's going to last or when it's going to end. But the ending is not going to be determined by macroeconomics, as is normally the case in recessions, but it's really going to be determined by microbiology. This is really only going to end when we get a vaccine or or better treatment. And it's really up to the microbiologist to solve the problem for us. Greg, in the 1970s, when you and I first studied macroeconomics, the oil and the food price crises got economists to consider the supply side of the economy what workers could produce given the technology and the machines they had available, and not just the demand side, which had been the focus of Keynesian analysis. The recession that began in 2008 
focused attention on the way in which financial market distress could contribute to macroeconomic problems, which in turn could further weaken financial markets and then through this kind of vicious cycle, further weaken the economy. So innovations in economic analyses prompted by these events led to a deeper and better understanding of the economy. And eventually they showed up in textbooks and work in the popular press. Do you think the current crisis will force a similar reckoning of what macroeconomic analysis may have ignored? Or is this just a straightforward application of aggregate supply, how much people can produce in an economy? I think we're still trying to figure that out, trying to figure out how much we need to change standard models. My own view is that the traditional theory we teach, which emphasizes the interaction between overall supply and overall demand, is a very versatile tool for thinking about the macroeconomy. And what we have in the current crisis is a change in both demand and supply. We have a reduction in the demand for goods and services because people are staying at home rather than going to stores and restaurants. And we have a reduction in the supply because a lot of workers are being told, don't go to work unless you're essential. And so we have a sudden and I hope temporary increase in what we might think of as structural unemployment. We just don't have enough jobs for people. A lot of people on temporary layoff and they kind of will get back to work when that those reasons for structural unemployment disappear. So, you know, obviously we're all hoping that it's temporary, but one of the key issues in economics is not just temporary movements, what we call business cycles, but long run growth. And one of the things that drew me to your textbook when I first began teaching macroeconomics was your innovative focus on growth. Now there are questions about that. Recently, your colleague Larry Summers has raised the issue of what he calls secular stagnation as a reason why we might not expect growth to resume. And then there are other pessimistic views as well, like those put forward by Robert Gordon in his 2016 book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. This book got a huge amount of attention when it was published. What's your view of our potential for long-run growth once we come out of the pandemic episode? You're right, Michael, that when I teach macroeconomics, I emphasize not only the short-run business cycle, but also the long-run growth that explains advances in living standards from generation to generation. A standard starting point when we teach economic growth is to assume that technological progress increases productivity by some steady rate. And technological progress is really how we end up living better than our grandparents, right? Yeah, exactly. The reason we're having higher standards of living than in the past is that we have better recipes. We know how to take capital labor and turn it into duff that we consume in ways that weren't possible in the past. And the assumption is that that tends to grow at 2% per year, which it has probably over the past century, roughly. But there's nothing in economic theory that says that always has to be the case. And before the Industrial Revolution, we didn't have productivity growth at that rate. It was much, much slower. And there's no reason to think that the growth since the Industrial Revolution is going to go on forever. So in addition to the Gordon book that you mentioned, I find very persuasive, there's a wonderful paper by Nick Bloom and several co-authors called Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find. And they look at the number of people involved in the research and development process and find that it's increased substantially over the past century. And despite the huge increase in the number of scientists and engineers, we're not really experiencing rap more rapid productivity growth, which suggests that we're diminishing returns and producing new good ideas. So it's very possible, as Gordon suggests, that we'll, the future will not see a degree of productivity growth, technological progress that we've seen in the past. Maybe we'll just reach a higher plateau of higher productivity, but not necessarily faster growth forever. 
And indeed, if you want to be pessimistic, it's entirely possible that with global climate change, things could actually get worse, that rather than progress, we'll get regress. Uh, I'm not predicting that scenario. I, I'm a little more optimistic than that, but I don't think it's out of the question. And not only that, but you know, the actions people take to offset climate change would contribute to GDP, but not necessarily people's well-being in the absence of it. It's a little bit like if you move to a rough neighborhood and you have to put more locks on your door, that contributes to GDP, but it doesn't mean you're sort of happier that you have to put more expensive locks on your door. Well, that's, a good, that's right. So if we find we have to build seawalls because the sea is rising, or we have to find that we have to move to our cities to different locations because climate change has made current locations inhospitable, yes, that's going to show up in GDP, but it won't show up in standards of living and, and human satisfaction. So shifting a little bit now from quantities to prices, another innovative feature of your textbook that I really liked was its emphasis on what economists call the classical dichotomy, which means there's sort of in the long run, a separation between what the prices of things are and how many things there are. And part of this is then the determination of inflation. So I've taught for decades now that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And the famous quote of Milton Friedman, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. You don't have to be that strong, but still there's a strong link in the long run between money supply growth and inflation. But I have to say it's becoming increasingly challenging now to teach this with the link between money growth and inflation seemingly severed and the Federal Reserve consistently undershooting its 2% inflation target. So Greg, how do you explain inflation or the lack of it to your students? Well, I think the first thing to say about the Fed undershooting is it's not that bad of undershooting. The average inflation over the past decade has been about 1.6%, which, as you point out, is less than two, but it's not a lot less than two. The Fed might have been wise to not choose a specific number. If they had chosen a range like one to three, they'd look a little more heroic today. Or maybe negative 10 to 40, and then they'd always say <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think they could have gone away with a narrower range than that, Michael. But, um, but, it, but given the level of imprecision in macroeconomics and macroeconomic policy, I wouldn't make a big deal of the difference between 1.6 and 2. But you're absolutely right. There have been huge puzzles about inflation over the past decade. Let me mention just two. One is that during the financial crisis and Great Recession of 2008-2009, we had very high unemployment. You might have expected disinflation or deflation. So disinflation is inflation coming down, and deflation is actually negative inflation, that prices would be falling. Exactly. That's what we experienced during the Great Depression. So you might have thought something like that would have happened in the Great Recession, and it didn't. And then similarly, after the very robust recovery, as we got down to very low unemployment rates in 2018 and 2019, you might have thought that inflation would start rising, and it didn't. So inflation stayed very close to 2% in both episodes. So why is that? Well, I don't think we know for sure, but one common explanation is that expectations have become well anchored, as the Fed has really convinced people that 2% is what they're aiming for. So what we teach and what economists think is that people's expectations of inflation actually drive what inflation is. So again, when you and I were first studying in the 1970s, inflation was wildly unanchored and drifting very high, and that helped to contribute to the high rates of inflation at that time. No, that's exactly right. Um, and so the question is, how did we get them anchored? I think we got them anchored through a lot of Fed credibility and good Fed policy. But under what circumstances might they become well unanchored? We know from 
sailing that sometimes boats slip their anchor and become unanchored. To make sure people understand the metaphor, you're recording this in Nantucket while you look at, out at the Atlantic Ocean, right? That's what I am. There's a lot of white caps out, out today, so there might be actually a few boats becoming unanchored. And so the question is, what might happen in the future to make expectations become unanchored? And we don't think we know the answer to that, but something to keep an eye on. And the failure of inflation to emerge has prompted a lot of discussion. And part of this is what's called modern monetary theory, or known by its acronym MMT. I've written an Econofact memo with, with Ken Kuttner of Williams College on modern monetary theory. And it seems to say that we don't have to worry about government deficits because governments have a monopoly over printing money and they can just print money to pay for the things that they're buying. You recently published a piece on MMT in the American Economic Association's annual Papers and Proceedings, and parts of this were reproduced in the popular press. Can you tell us your views on modern monetary theory? Yeah, it took me a while to figure them out because modern monetary theorists and mainstream macroeconomists at times seem to be speaking different languages. So I spent the last summer actually reading a book about MMT to try to figure it out. And there's some common ground and there's some disagreements. So I agree with MMT advocates that governments can always print money to cover budget deficits. Um, that's what seniorage is all about. It was what, that's what economists call the revenue of creating money. But the MMT advocates lead to the conclusion that the governments don't need to worry about their intertemporal budget constraint. And that means that eventually you have to pay back what you've borrowed. Yeah, exactly. So you know, just as people have budget constraints, so, so do governments. So why doesn't the ability to print money mean you don't have to worry about your, your budget anymore? Well, most economists think that if you print too much money, you'll get inflation. And rather than going to hyperinflation, you'd rather actually default on your debt. That government default may be a better outcome than hyperinflation. And so therefore, even while you could print money, you may actually may not choose to. And so the, the ability to print money may not be as profound as MMT advocates suggest. And part of this becomes that advocates of MMT have a different view of the inflation process. They tend to argue that inflation results from a class conflict between capital uh, and labor, and that when you get inflation uh, in this way, you, you can often ameliorate that by income policies like wage and price controls. Uh, most economists look at the historical experience of wage and price controls and are much more skeptical that it offers the useful approach to controlling inflation. The last time those were tried in the United States was under President Nixon, right? Yeah, exactly. And I don't think most people think, think of that as a good experience. It was also tried during World War II, and some economists like John Kenneth Galbraith were still big advocates of wage and price controls uh, in the aftermath of the World War II experience. But I think most mainstream macroeconomists do not see that as a useful policy tool. And then it was tried in other countries as well, typically without success, as countries tried to bring down high inflation. But what you're suggesting, Greg, is that modern monetary theory is actually about fiscal policy, not monetary policy. And now, of course, we have some of the largest deficits on record. And the debt to GDP, the amount of deficits that government has accumulated over time relative to national income, the debt to GDP looks like it's going to exceed 100%. These are levels that haven't been seen since the end of World War II. So Maury Oaksfeld and I have an Econofact memo on the resolution of very high levels of debt. What's your view on the current fiscal policy? Should we now be like St. Augustine and pray to be chased, but not quite yet? 
uh, in the midst of a crisis, it, worrying about uh, the debt is probably not the first priority unless uh, financial markets are going to force you to, to do so. So as of right now, I probably agree with a lot of MMT advocates that we shouldn't be worrying about the budget deficit. But I think your St. Augustine quotation is right. We need to be chased at some point, even if it's not now. It's going to be when this crisis is over. We need to get fiscal policy back on track, like after World War II, where we had slow declines in the debt to GDP ratio over many decades. Uh, how to do that is going to be a, is a big policy debate. I'm an advocate of smaller government, so I'd be delighted if they could figure out ways to do that all on the spending side. But my guess is realistically, we're going to need uh, new revenue sources as well. My two favorite are carbon tax to deal with climate change, which I talked about earlier, um, and a maybe value-added tax, which is a tax they use in many European countries. It's a relatively efficient way of raising substantial amounts of revenue. So, Greg, I'd like to conclude by asking you about some of your experience working in government in the service of the country. You've had experience at the highest levels of government economic policymaking. As I said, you were the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. What was that experience like for you? And from that experience, what's your sense of how economic analysis affects political decisions and how does politics affect the analysis of economists who are working for the government? One thing to say is that I probably never worked as hard as I did during those two years working at the, as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. You know, the White House is a busy place and people get early, get there early and, and leave late. So I really worked harder those two years that I did in any two years I've been at Harvard. But it was an absolutely fantastic experience. And if there are any academic economists out there listening to this, I would encourage them to take the advantage of the opportunity of participating in public service, both because you're making the world a better place. And you'll also learn a lot about economics, about how economics can be used, you know, at the limits of economics from actually being a participant in the policy process. Um, but a couple other things I want to say about that experience. The first is that when you work as an economist in government, you have to realize that you're really not a decision maker. You're really an advisor. So on a CEH here, I have no real power over anything, but I got to talk to a lot of people who did have power. And so your ability to influence policy comes from your ability to persuade and provide useful information to the decision makers. The decision makers are elected officials. I fortunately got to work for George W. Bush, who really did want to listen. I ended up having tremendous respect for him as, as an individual, uh, and I was felt very honored to be able to work for him for, for those two years, recognizing that in the end, is always his decision, not mine, because he's the guy who got elected. I get the sense the current occupant of the Oval Office may not listen quite as much to his advisors, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there, so I, I can't say that for sure. Uh, the, the second thing to say about being an economist in government rather than academia is that you have to give up some of your freedom of speech. When you're in academia, you get to say whatever you want, whenever you want to say it, because you're, you're a very you're an independent scholar. But when you're working in, in government, you're part of a team of policymakers. And when you speak, you're speaking as a representative of that team. And so you really can't just say what happens to be on your mind. You have to be cognizant of the fact that you are representing a team and, and edit yourself, which can, for someone with a lot of opinions like me, that can, that can be hard. Uh, I often want to speak my mind, but you can't always do that when you're a part of government. But it's well worth the sacrifice because you can learn a lot and have some input into the policy process and the small way. I'll make the world a better place. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I served in the U.S. Treasury in the Obama administration. It's just really one of the highlights of my career. So, Greg, thanks very much for speaking with me today and for your insights on the macroeconomic situation, which is certainly very challenging and will give economists a lot to talk about and think about 
and hopefully help out with over the next few years. You're welcome, Michael. It was a pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.